Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. So I spend a lot of my time trying to listen to our customers and distribution networks to ensure that we're delivering on the promises and the wants and needs of our customers. What we want to do is look at the claims department as a reason for winning business. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Andrew Pedlow with us, and our topic will be the role of claims in client service. Andrew is Head of Claims, Client Relationships and Innovation at Liberty Specialty Markets, LSM, a role he has held since 2019. Andrew joined LSM as a reinsurance claims specialist in 2012. Uh, before progressing to a senior claims specialist role in 2015. Prior to this, Andrew worked at Exchanging in risk processing. And before that, well, before that, he wasn't even in insurance. So we'll be discussing that in a moment and how he gets into insurance. So, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And um, I mentioned there that you, you kind of started life outside of insurance and you, you studied history uh, at university. So what was it that kind of effectively drew you from where you started to the world of insurance? I guess, and this question gets asked in, in many different ways, and it's usually, you know, how did you come into insurance? And people have the same generic answer. So I don't, I don't really want to give that generic answer, but I will do. It isn't in an industry that I had particularly considered. So as you've um, stated, I read um, history at the University of Reading, and then I, I did the typical grad approach of applying to graduate schemes. And then there, were a, there was an advert for a local insurer or outsource provider reading in, in exchanging. And because I wanted that holy grail of office experience, I, I applied. Um, I got the job. And essentially, while I was there, I, um, I worked all the hours I could to save money and go traveling. Where did you go traveling? So I did um, a lot of the US. So I did uh, so I did three months in the US backpacking around there. Oh, wow. I, I love the US. My son lives in California. And in my year off, I, I traveled across America by Greyhound. So yeah, so whereabouts in America? Uh, so we landed in um, San Francisco and then went down across the bottom and back then out of Toronto, in fact. And it's incredibly interesting that you mention traveling on the Greyhound because you are potentially the first person that has also traveled on the Greyhound across um, America, which is I don't know when you did it, but it's slightly different now to the Greyhound experience that you may receive elsewhere. <laughs> I, I did it mid-80s and it was pretty awful. So all the Greyhound stations were in the worst parts of each city, but I survived it. It still remains the same, but you do meet some very, very interesting characters. And it, it's, having, it's having those stories and the experiences that you have, that you have while traveling or, or in life that you, that you want to then tell others. So the Greyhound was definitely, definitely one of those. A, a wonderful country, a wonderful country. Anyway. I'm also intrigued to know, do you still read history? You did history at university, but is, is it something which still inspires you to this day? I do still read history, um, and it's something that interests me. But what I do now is I read a lot more of behavioural economics and anthropology, obviously of the populist type, so uh, Kahneman, Fadwell, Harari. I love the way that there is science to the rationale behind why people do the things they do and also how society can influence that. One of my favorite examples, I guess, from Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman um, is the theory of regression to the mean. Have you, have you heard of that? I, I've read the book. It's a fantastic book, but, but please explain. Brilliant. Well, I, I think it, it, one of the, the best examples is that if, if, I, if I, Peter, told you that you'd won a million pounds on the lottery today, how, how would you feel? I, I would feel vaguely... I wouldn't be doing this podcast for a start. <laughs> 
Uh, obviously, I would still be doing this podcast. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, in the years to say, you'd be, you'd be very happy. However, if I told you, if I rang you and told you you'd won 10 million on the lottery, and then I called back in an hour and told you that actually nine other people had won the lottery and you'd only won a million, you'd feel disappointed. You'd feel disappointed that you didn't have the 10 million, which is called a regression to the mean, because your mean wasn't zero. It was then 10 million. And I absolutely love that. I love that idea. And then we want to call people and societies rational. Now, that's not a rational reaction to be disappointed about winning a million pounds. I think we need to consider that a little bit more when we either issue edicts or try to force change or implement change within the business. We need to understand how people are likely to or have historically been proven to react to change circumstances. I've always intended to do a whole series of blogs using thinking fast and slow on, on mediation technique. Anyway, we're not here to talk about this, Andrew. <laughs> Interesting though it is, and in many respects, I think now we've started on it, I think, yeah, let's, let's, let's keep this going for another half hour. But we're not doing it. We're talking about the role of claims in client service. Um, so first off, could you explain to us what it means to be a head of claims, client relationships and innovation? And what is it that you're trying to achieve in that role? Sure, and I'll, I'll take it in two parts because although the claim, the client relationship side and innovation can be treated separately, and there are separate responsibilities to each of them, what you would hope is that anything you do to innovate was to the benefit of the client or the customer. But I mean, ultimately, on that side, I'm responsible for how, as an organisation, we look at our relationships with brokers and policyholders within the claims team. So I spend a lot of my time trying to listen to our customers and distribution networks to ensure that we're delivering on the promises and the wants and needs of our customers. This concept that we always want to look at a claims team never being a barrier to doing business, I think that should be relatively obvious. That shouldn't really be a statement that we use anymore. What we want to do is look at the claims department as a reason for winning business. How can you bring more business to a company and better outcomes for your client through quality claims service? So a lot of my role is focused on that. If we look at the innovation side of it, obviously that has technological conversations because of the, the way people use that word. But it's not really. It's looking at something that is available or you can implement into an organization. And that's kind of the important part. So it might be the implementation of a customer management strategy or um, a strategy to improve our client service and then implementing that change idea throughout the business. So that's, that's kind of what, where my role is, is centered, looking after our customers. You used a phrase in the middle of that about using claims as a way of winning business, which I think is a wonderful phrase and a wonderful way of looking at it. And placing that in context, kind of the historical context of, of claims departments and claims teams, could you summarise what the traditional role of the claims team had been a few years ago, the, the, way, the way the claims fitted into the grand scheme of insurance? Sure. I think claims has always been used to win business. If you've had a good claim experience, then you are much more likely to renew business. That's it's just, it's just a fact. Likewise, if you've had a poor experience, then you're likely to go elsewhere. I think the, um, the traditional role of the claims team was very much that. It, it, did, it did claim. So it, it would wait effectively, um, presumably asleep, um, until a policy was triggered, and then the claims team would respond. They'd investigate the circumstances of that claim, and then if the circumstances prove that a claim was valid, then they would make payment. What we do now is we spend a lot of time with our customers and our brokers either before that policy is incepted, so making sure that people understand the policy, and then after the inception, make sure that we have the right um, contacts and procedures in place so that client knows what to expect in the event of the claim. I think people also forget that is 
when a, a company has, has a claim, because you see it so often in the claims department, it's what you do every day. That business may have never had a claim before. And now suddenly they are facing the most difficult time maybe their business has ever faced, depending on, on the claim, right? And they may have had a relationship with a person in a company for five years, usually the underwriter or someone in business development or distribution. And then suddenly at the event of the claim, that person's taken away from them and they're given someone else to speak to. So what we try and do at Liberty and within our claims team is to make sure that we have that relationship before the claim is made. In terms of the judicial role, we've talked about, I suppose, kind of not, not putting words in your mouth, but it's, the claims might well be reactive. Um, but how, how do you think that can or should change? And, and how do you envisage the claims team of 2030, for example, looking 10 years ahead? How do you think the claims team there or, or the way in which claims fits within the grand scheme of things will look? I, mean, I, think, it's, I think it's definitely changed already. Uh, so the industry has definitely changed over the last five or 10 years that I've been working in insurance. And although a claim by its nature is almost reactive, the skills and capabilities of the claims team don't have to be reactive. So as said, we've, we've seen most claims and handled most claims. So therefore, we have a knowledge or access to insights that we can give back to our customers. So for example, where we talk about if we can bring a client into the business with the broker and discuss risks that might be applicable to them, then we can help them mitigate the risks. So there's a lot more that you can do to be proactive. It doesn't just have to be an event of a claim. I think as we move to 2030, I, th I think we are going to see a big change. I think, although the way we see insurance, I think is already changing. I think as we look towards 2030, what people, and when I say people, I mean clients, will expect of the insurance product um, will be dramatically different. And a lot of that will be tech and service focused which again seem polar opposites, but, but they're very much not. What you want to be doing is leveraging the tech um, to give better service to our clients. Particularly with, with tech uh, and data sometimes used interchangeably, we will have access to much more data than we've ever had before. And if we get the ability or have the ability to understand it, again, we can give greater insight and give that back to the client. Uh, I think the big challenge, and I think people in your podcast have spoken about this previously, is we do need to have the ability within claims teams and within the organizations to better manipulate that data. And I think that will be a core remit of the claims department in 2030. It will be the ability to understand that data and either play it back internally quicker than we have been able to do before. And also, again, importantly, to give that data back to the client where we can. And what sort of data are, are we talking about? The risks that you're seeing across a book of business or specific data in relation to that client? Twofold, really. So if we have a client um, who has uh, a number of frequency-related claims, we would want to tell that client what claims experience they are experiencing and exactly what's causing it and where and how, again, we can look to mitigate that. Then more widely, if we can feedback trends that we see across the industry, not only for our own exposures, but, but more widely, we have that then access to that data. Again, we can give that um, back to the client to help that mitigation of risk. Yeah. So as you say, it's about risk mitigation, ways in which you can work closely with clients to, to mitigate risk, as opposed to perhaps the traditional model, which is simply risk is transferred to insurers when there's a claim, insurers sort it out, and that's the end of it, but much more interaction. No, no, I completely agree. And that, that, that there's a number of ways where you can transfer risks, right? You, you transfer it on a financial perspective, like you take that risk off your balance sheet, which is the more traditional view. Um, then you have the risk transfer in terms of 
you transfer a bit of responsibility or the opportunity for someone else to help you manage those risks. So it's that kind of a educational is, 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 the, is the wrong word, but that collaborative approach to the risk transfer as well. And I think that's where insurers can get better at giving value back to their clients. I, I think that's excellent. Um, and once again, you mentioned previous podcasts and, and previous podcasts have talked about the, the fact that there does need to be that, that, that much closer link between insurer and insured, which is exactly what you're saying as well. For example, the insurances that I personally take out, home contents, whatever, I, I, I couldn't tell, really tell you who, who the insurers are and they've never contacted me. I've never contacted them. And I appreciate it's different in, with specialty risks than it is with those sorts of risks. But do you feel that there's a, there, there is a risk for insurers um, and insureds if, if actually there becomes too much of a distance between insurers as a whole and insureds as a whole? That was an appalling question, but I hope you got the general gist of what I was trying to get at. I'll give it a go. <laughs> so I don't think we have become too distant, but what I think you need to do is make sure that you are creating the right distance between yourself and your clients. So I guess to, to use your example, how much interaction do you want with your home insurer or your motor insurer? You might argue it's okay. Um, I know they're there. I know I'll be covered in the event of the claim. Actually, I don't want too much interaction with them. However, there could be opportunities for them to give you better data. So if you were insuring your 18-year-old child, for example, maybe you would want to know, you know where they were, how fast they were driving, what their driving experience was. So that's an example of the customer saying, well, actually, now I want more interaction. I think what we need to do and what we are definitely trying to do is to, one, ask customers the level of interaction they want, and then to see if we have become too distant. And I think that's really important because you, you can't treat everyone the same, and it's very difficult. I think there is an argument to say that in the wholesale areas of specialty business, the insurer has become a little bit too distant from the end consumer. However, again, I think that is a question for everyone in that value chain. So the question should be, is it working for the end client? If it is working, the distance is perfect. If it's not, uh, we need to improve that. And that's certainly something that I'm, I'm very much looking to do is to ensure that we do understand our customers and where we don't, we find out more about them. And where we do understand what they need, we need to make sure that what we are doing delivers to their wants and needs. And uh, I'm aware that you kind of run kind of various workshops um, for clients. And so could you talk us through what happens on those workshops and, and, and what you feel that the benefit, what the, the outcome of those workshops is? Yeah, so I think if we look at the workshops, a lot of it, a lot of the workshops kind of do what they say on the tin, really. We, we bring together um, the, the, usually a risk manager and the broker, and we run them through a claim scenario. So we run them through something that we have seen within our business and they might not have seen. Um, and we help them to, again, it's, I don't want to use the phrase again, but it is about the risk mitigation angle. So we can let them understand that these risks are out there and we know they're out there because we have the experience uh, and we have dealt with them previously. So if we can run through the scenarios with them, obviously it gives them comfort as well. And they understand that in the event of the claim, there are certain documents that we may need. Um, and it's that understanding to help in the process of actually handling the claim being as easy as possible. Now, that's what we do with the scenario planning. I think what we're doing is then moving that into a into a more virtual world. Talking of the virtual world, um, what have you been doing to help clients kind of over the last few months? So yes, I think what we've done is we've moved from a relationship that was primarily face-to-face. -face. We've now gone to a virtual relationship. But I think anything that previously added value in person still will add value virtually. 
And that's right now why we run the virtual scenario workshops. But what that does enable us to do is it has positives and negatives. I, I think it's more difficult to establish trust between two parties if you don't have that personal reaction. But what it does enable us to do is there's a great opportunity to meet more of our customers and our clients. Um, I can now meet with whole teams within a client's organization. And we, we have done that in scenario workshops uh, as well, or with multiple clients at once. So if you're running webinars now, you may have done that individually to a team within an organization, whereas now you can do it to multiple people at multiple times. And that wouldn't, I don't think that would have been acceptable beforehand because the client would have wanted it to be a one-on-one. So there is a lot of opportunities to it. We also provide remote loss adjusting um, at, because that was a requirement early on within the COVID pandemic. And to my internal surprise, it has had much less impact for us and the wider industry than expected. I think, um, in fact, in many areas, our service has improved and we have moved seamlessly into using technology holding virtual court cases, mediations, meetings, arbitrations. I think people have embraced video conferencing and technology in a way that I can't believe is is true. People now um, prefer it in in a lot of ways. There's no doubt the last few months have been a catalyst for all sorts of things. I mean, here we are on Zoom. I hadn't even heard of Zoom kind of uh, seven or eight months ago. So how do you think that will, will there be any long-term changes, do you think, in the insurer-insured relationship as a result of what we're going through at the moment? I think people will still need that personal interaction, whether that's over a computer screen or it's in a different way. I do think if we use the opportunity to get it right, I think that would help. To be honest, I have, as it may be coming across, I've given up trying to predict what's going to happen now. So I think if there is an opportunity uh, to change the relationship if we want to, uh, I hope that isn't a cop-out. But I think if as an insurer we are set up to embrace change and to change quickly, and I think we can at least keep up with the changing expectations of our customers. And in one interview that I came across when I was doing my stalking, online stalking of you, Andrew, um, I, I saw that you, 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 you'd said that you wanted to see insurance as, as a driver of cultural and economic change. Um, and, and how do you think that will work out? How do you think that can be achieved? I think at the time I was referring to a specific type of insurance, uh, i.e. micro-insurance and how we could use that for developing nations in order to enable them to become more resilient to natural catastrophes, etc. The way you can raise people out of poverty or societies out of poverty is to give them access to financial instruments. Just briefly, could you explain to us what micro-insurance is? I, I know what, what micro-banking is, effectively micro-loans that, that we, we see a lot of in developing countries, but I haven't come across micro-insurance before. So could you talk us through that? Very similar. And there's um, so Lloyd's have done a, a paper on it. It's usually in uh, tandem with a local government or uh, a municipal organization. And essentially, it's very similar to a micro loan. So I, I, can't, I think the categorization is something below $50 in, in premium. But essentially, it's designed for it would be a, a coffee farmer, for example, whose crop um, is either, either burnt out or, or flooded out. And then if they didn't have access to any financial redress, then the family or the or, or the community would would very much you know, struggle or something more serious. So the, the concept is to give them access to a very low premium product, usually by something like a mobile phone payment. They would take out a limit of liability, for example, for say fifty dollars. They pay a very small premium on that via a mobile phone transaction charge, and then if a weather event happened, 
then we would pick we would pick that up and it's also a parametric insurance so it would pay out automatically in the event of that weather event happening and that money would go directly to the farmer i think that's what i was talking about um, in that example i think in, in general insurance more widely should have and does have capacity to produce economic and social change I think socially, we're seeing that now with the types of risks that insurers are prepared to accept. And I think the industry as a whole does need to look you know, at how it provides a service to clients and the community in general. But Andrew, finally, um, thank you so much for answering all of those questions and for kind of kind of talking about claims and how that can fit in with client service. And that's been really helpful. But I always ask everyone, what's the one thing you've learned? If someone, a young person comes to you kind of wanting to know about the insurance industry, what, what, what pearl of wisdom would you pass on to them? Let's see if I can, I can pull out a pearl. I, th- I think the, I would ask people to stop thinking about insurance as a separate industry. I would think about insurance as permeating every industry um, that, that, that exists. So to give an example, you're more likely to work in a particular industry segment than you are in inverted commas insurance. So if you say work in aviation insurance, your interests and your contacts are going to be predominantly with people in the aviation industry. So you're going to become an aviation expert as well as an insurance expert. And I'm sure you, you found that definitely when you speak to people in the industry aligned to a particular product line, that's what they talk about. If you work in renewable energy, where do you think your interests lie? If you work in cyber, strategic assets, crisis management, you're much more likely to have an interest in that industry. And I think that's the advice I would give to young people is to stop thinking about the banner of insurance and actually think about, well, do you know what? I'm really interested in this. And insurance is a great gateway to that individual industry. Andrew, that was very, very wise. And dare I say it, an answer that we haven't received before. So, Andrew, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. And please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.